0: Morning, family. Good morning. Uh, We've got just a little bit of um, business to take care of before we get into the preaching of the word this morning. And I wish that it was pleasant business. It is not pleasant business, um, but it is important business. And so we come uh, today to a time of needing to tell it to the church. Uh, in discipline this morning. Um, Before I get into this, I want to just make a few comments about that. Number one, um, for me personally, and I believe I can speak for most of us in the body this morning, this is something that we are still as of yet learning how to walk through together. Um, By large majority, I think I can say with surety that most of us come from backgrounds and from places uh, that have not um, seemingly even attempted to faithfully walk in what the Bible calls us to in disciplining its members. And, uh, And so because of that, there's a lot of foreignness, there's a lot of newness, there's a lot of trying to, in some ways, fumble around in the dark as to what does this look like practically for us as a body? Uh, what does it mean for us in a day and age of, of technology and of so many different ways of communicating things to one another? What does it mean to communicate these things? Where it is the best way and method of doing so? And, uh, and so I want to I just express that humbly to you that, that this is something that we are still learning together as a body. Uh, but our desire is as much as we are able as to walk in faithfulness to the Lord in these things. And as simply as it is put, to tell it to the church, as is, is, is simple as it is, is to come and I believe here in the presence of the gathered body on a Sunday morning is, is to tell it to you guys. Um, now, for those of you who are visiting, this can seem odd, may not be what you expected to experience when you walked in this morning. And and so please know that, that this is for the members of this body this morning. And because God and His sovereignty has brought you here, uh, that you get to kind of listen in on this little bit of church business this morning. Um, I want to also say that over the last 24 months or more, uh, we have been in a season of having to deal with more discipline than we've ever had to deal with before. And there is a sense in which, and I've communicated this from the pulpit recently, there's a sense in which we as a body seem to be under the discipline of the Lord. I myself have felt the hand of discipline of the Lord in my own life, in my own body, in my own walk with the Lord. And it is our prayer, is our hope, that the need of formal discipline will be lessened as the body itself walks out in formal discipline with each other. Um, that private part of discipline that comes before the public telling it to the church part of discipline. And so I want to this morning, provoke us together in this to say, uh, guys, body, family, church, Let's be faithful uh, to be engaged in the process of informal church discipline with one another for love covers a multitude of sin. And it is not our hope or our desire um, that all the sins of all the people of all the church would be constantly having to be told forth to the rest of the body, but rather those things could be dealt with in a more private and individual fashion as we are walking in confession and repentance with one another on a regular basis. And so uh, with that, we will begin this morning with with this sort of final preamble. Um, You will find that when we do come to these times that they follow a certain pattern. Uh, And you'll even say, well, golly, that sounds a lot like what Mike said the last time uh, we had to do this. That is purposeful. Let me tell you why. Uh, It is purposeful because we are broken and sinful people, Um, and it is purposeful so that our imperfect passions uh, do not overtake the necessity of what needs to be said. And so the things that have been said and written have been thoughtful and purposeful, and it is my desire to say nothing more or nothing less than what is written here. And, and that, is, that is for our good, um, so that these times that are important may not be dictated by human passions. Amen? Amen. Matthew 18, 15 through 20 says, "'If your brother sins against you, "'go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. "'If he listens to you, you have gained your brother.'" I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This passage from Jesus teaching to his disciples along with instruction from the apostles throughout the New Testament letters give us the foundation for what church discipline is and how it should be walked out, namely that this process is always for the express purpose of restoration and that any expulsion from the body through excommunication is only ever to be for the purity of the church and the glory of God and so that even then, at that point, the one sinning may repent and be received again into the body. Over the last year or more, this process has been being walked out on behalf of of one of our members, and today we are not at the point of excommunication, which would be the fourth step outlined here, rather we come to that third step, which is to tell it to the church, as Jesus says here at the beginning of verse 17, over the last year a process of informal church discipline began on behalf of Susie Simone. It was understood from the beginning that that process would escalate, if needed, to a more formal expression of church discipline. While some aspects of that process have been heated, continue regular attendance to Lord's Day gatherings and missional community, however, more specific items of recommendation have not been heeded or followed, which has led to more sin. The neglect of these things... Along with further indulgence in sins, both personal and private, as well as open and public, have, in accordance with appropriate pastoral care and love, necessitated the formalizing of the discipline required to call Susie to repentance and faith. As we all are also called, Susie is called to faith in Christ and repentance, to renounce and put away her sin. And to embrace the pursuit of a life of godliness and holiness empowered by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. After being confronted with these things, Susie has verbally expressed repentance and has submitted and agreed to this process of formal church discipline. And she is here today and by the grace of God and through the help of the Holy Spirit has committed to the process that has been recommended to her. This process of discipline is not punitive, meaning it is not punishment, but rather corrective and given with care and love for her soul. Galatians 6, 1-2 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over your, on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In accordance with this instruction from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, and also in his instruction to Titus to have the older women instruct the younger women, it is our desire to see a few godly women come around Susie and to be engaged in this process of restoration for her. We are grateful for their willingness and love for our sister. We ask you, the church, now to be engaged in this process of lovingly and firmly calling their sister to regular repentance, to desist in any enabling practices that allow her to remain in darkness rather than in light, and above all, for all of us to pray for her regularly. Let us pray for her and for ourselves now. Almighty and holy God, our Father, creator of the universe and justifier of your people whom you have chosen and redeemed through the sacrifice and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, we are humbled before you. We stand before you with fear and trembling, conscious of our own imperfection, yet conscious also of the responsibility that you have given your church to discipline its members. Father, you alone can change the hearts of men. And you alone can convict the heart of sin and by your Holy Spirit bring repentance and faith. We ask you now, O God, to please do that. May your own hand of discipline be upon Susie, and bring her to true faith and repentance with loving and joyful obedience. Holy Father, grieving deeply, we plead that this action may build up your people and cause none to stumble, but rather that you would enliven our faith and increase our desire to walk in your ways. We ask this, Father, in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 May God be glorified in that. All right. Now, for the more pleasant part. And it is pleasant. I, I know that I said that it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant because it's, it's, it's not something that we want to do. It's not something that we desire to do, to, to have to do what we did this morning. At the same time, it is pleasant. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those He loves. And, and His discipline proves legitimacy. And our endurance in that discipline proves legitimacy. And so we praise Him that He is faithful to discipline His children as a faithful father. Amen? And so in that regard, what does it say? It says that, that at the end of it, that that discipline of the Lord would would yield the, 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 the fruit of righteousness. And that is pleasant, and that is good. And so we long for that. Amen? Amen. This morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Uh, We will be again in chapter 4 for at least this week and next week um, as we finish up our series in the book of Jonah. Um, If you do not have a Bible, there should be a hard-backed black one nearby. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. And if you don't see one right under your chair, then just ask someone to pass you one. Uh, We will be reading this morning verses uh, 10 of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4. Uh, But we'll be focusing this morning really on verses 1 through 4. Let's read together chapter 3, verse 10, through the end of chapter 4 together. Let's begin. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord!' Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, And made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons whom do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This morning we're going to focus really on verses 1 through 4. and invite you to look there again where it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Here this morning, as we look at these four verses, what we're going to deal with is the complexity Of Jonah's anger, the complexity of Jonah's anger. It's important as we read Scripture and we are confronted with the different characters that are presented to us throughout the narrative of Scripture that we do not fall prey to viewing them in a very monochromatic way. And it's easy to do that. The characters of Scripture often become wooden to us or monochromatic, meaning that that they carry just one sort of color. To us, and, and so it's easy when we see Jonah here to just immediately go to the first part of chapter 1 and, and just kind of see Jonah in this very wooden, monochromatic way that is not complex. And in doing so, we kind of don't uh, extend to Jonah the same kind of uh, charity that we would expect someone else to extend to us. Because in our own anger, we would expect that someone would deal with the complexities of who we are uh, and understand that we ourselves are not wooden or monochromatic, but we are very complex creatures. And so I do think it's important that we deal with the complexity of Jonah's anger here. And I want you to see what is being contrasted most importantly, even in its complexity, is very simply, as we talked about last week, the contrast between Jonah's anger and God's compassion. Jonah's anger and God's compassion. We're met with Jonah's anger right out of the bat in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. And again, it comes to us in this contrasted way. Remember I said last week, almost everyone in this narrative of this story is acting contrary to the way we would expect. And here, Jonah has not let us down in that as we get to verse 1 of chapter 4. Because here at the end of chapter 3, we have this amazing thing. And as much as Jonah being found alive in the belly of the of the great fish and being spewed up alive is a miracle, to be quite honest... The miracle of this great city of Nineveh repenting is honestly probably a greater miracle. Uh, It is an amazing thing that has happened. And we're confronted with it in such uh, an astounding way. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said that He would do to them. He did not do it. And what we should expect, what we should rightly expect as we transition, now again, I know the chapters and verses didn't come till much later. It wasn't there immediately, but for our own reading, as we're journeying through this story, this narrative, as it were, we get to chapter four, and we're kind of like, okay, what's next? What we should expect is a worship service, a praise and honor and glory be to the King, the one, Christ, you know, to God alone. Be the glory, great things he has done. He has turned the hearts of these. Uh, unrepentant sinners, they have repented and God has relented, he's shown great compassion this is amazing, this is wonderful that's what we should expect, that's what we should hope our own hearts would respond with when sinners repent, amen and immediately we are met with but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry I mean, we we should rightly almost be flabbergasted at that point, like sucker punched in the gut, wind knocked out, like, like what? Jonah, are you kidding me right now? What? After all you've been through, after the compassion the Lord Himself has shown to you, now you are you are displeased and exceedingly angry. And, it, and it's not just that. The, the English here is understated. It's like the understatement of the, of the millennia, okay, for him. Because, it, it, you know, we kind of read it in this sort of like stoic. It displeased Jonah greatly. He was, ang- and he was angry. But in the Hebrew, it is vivid. It's vivid that Jonah is livid, In the Hebrew, uh, literally, literally what it means in the Hebrew is that it was, listen to this, evil. It was evil to Jonah as a great wrong. It was evil to Jonah as a great wrong. Now let's listen to that again and understand what he is responding to. When God saw what they did, chapter 3, verse 10... How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, his anger. In other words, but Jonah, but it was evil to Jonah that God did not do what he had said that he would do, and that he did not do it. And to Jonah, it was a great wrong what's happening here Jonah is calling what God has done evil Remember we've we've already seen the connection to Romans chapter 9 You can turn there if you want And Paul addresses this This sort of like question that seems to be here for Jonah. Where he says, what shall we say then? Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy... On whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And in chapter 9 here, Paul will point again back to the potter, even as we looked at in Jeremiah chapter 18. And he asked this question, shall, shall the clay say to the potter, Why did you make me this way? Has, has the potter not authority over the clay to make out of one lump a vessel of, of glory and out of another lump a vessel of destruction? In Jeremiah 18, we see the, the potter make something out of the clay and then decide to crush it and remake it into something else. This is what is the prerogative of the potter. And what's happening here? Here as the clay, Jonah is saying "You, to the potter, you blew it. You have done evil in my eyes. This is a great and terrible place for Jonah to be in. It was evil to Jonah as a great wrong. He is livid. It's the superlative, the strongest possible language that could be used to describe Jonah's anger is being used here in the Hebrew. He's livid. Why? Jonah is angry because of God's compassion toward Nineveh. Jonah is angry at God, because of God's compassion toward Nineveh. What does he say in verse 2? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And he's so angry, he's at such a point that we get there and then he says, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Therefore, what's the therefore there Therefore, because I'm so angry, kill me. I can't take it anymore. What's happening here is is strange because Jonah in verse 2 gives gives a right confession. He has a right confession of who God is in verse 2. He has a correct understanding of God's character and nature. And what he says in verse 2, it's true. It is true. One of the truest statements possible for any human being to make. Why? Because it's what God Himself says about Himself. Exodus 34, verses 4 through 9. We referenced it before, but if you want to turn there with me, you can read it. Exodus 34, 4 through 9, Moses on the mountaintop at Sinai getting the tablets of stone. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here we see the covenant of Sinai being established with his people, Moses, on the, the, the ground here seeing what's happening before his very eyes, the Lord descending in the cloud, declaring his name, hiding him in the cleft of the rock, covering him and allowing his glory to pass by him. And as he does, he declares this about himself. The very thing that Jonah is rightly confessing in verse 2. But there's a great contrast between Jonah's posture after the declaration of God's character in Moses. What do we see happen with Moses in verse 8 of Exodus 34? Immediately, what does it say? Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped. Why? Because good and right theology should always lead us into doxology. Into worship, and not just worship, good and right theology should lead us in good and right worship, good and right doxology. Jonah has the right theology, but he has misapplied it, and it seems to be bypassing his heart completely. Man, what a loser. I mean, I've never experienced that. I'm sure you've never experienced that, right? We always, we always have the right theology and it's always leading us in right doxal. I mean, what is this guy's problem? But we have that problem, don't we? All too often, all too often we can receive and know and, and even in some sense understand what is good and right and true about God and yet the connection the eight inch connection between our brain and our heart is not connected. It misses our heart completely. Why? Well, because like Jonah, we are complex creatures, not wooden or monochromatic. And here, there is a complex mixture of motivations in Jonah's heart, even as there are for us. And I think that in seeing this in him, I pray, I hope, will help us in our own complexities. What is interesting to note, and we'll get here in in a few minutes, is that even in quoting Exodus 34, the word used for love that God uses in the Hebrew in Exodus 34 is the word hased, And the word hased, which, yes, means love, carries with it a very specific kind of love. It is covenant love. It is love that is encapsulated. It is protected. It is experienced in the midst of covenant. And we'll get to that a little bit later, because in a sense, there is a way in which Jonah's words in response to the Lord here are a play on words, almost like he is reminding God of his covenant love for his own people. And so we'll get to that. But there's complexity. I want to suggest at least a few reasons why Jonah is angry. The first reason that I believe Jonah is angry is actually, in some sense, we could say a right motivation for anger that is misapplied. And that is, there is a sense in which I believe Jonah is angry for God's sake. There's a sense in which his anger uh, is, is here thinking God's name will be tarnished because ...of the proclamation of judgment and the passing over of that judgment. Now here, Jonah has come as the prophet of God, of the God of Israel... ...and he comes to a pagan people in a pagan land... ...and he begins to proclaim the judgment of the Lord. Now, commentators disagree on whether or not... ...what we see explicitly in the text as Jonah's message... ...is the fullness of his text or sorry, the fullness of his message. Um, and, and we see here that, that God says in chapter 3, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And what we see Jonah say in verse number 4 is, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And in, contained in explicitly what we have in the text, we don't hear Jonah say, But if you will repent... God may relent of the disaster that He said He will do towards you and not do it. We don't don't see that in the text explicitly. And so commentators are torn on whether or not that happened. Now, I will say that it is presumptuous at least to say we see Jonah proclaiming the word of the Lord for 40 days in a great city. Again, this is not a wooden character. He's not monochromatic do we believe that really that he only said these same words over and over again? It's possible. It's possible. It doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, whether or not Jonah explicitly said, but if you will repent, perhaps God may relent, the people repented. And they repented With some measure of faith, believing perhaps he may relent. And God did. And as we said, that's a great miracle. But what is Jonah's concern? Jonah's concern now is that the proclamation of the word of the Lord has gone out, that in 40 days he's going to destroy the city. And if God doesn't destroy the city after 40 days, then what's happened? God's word hasn't been kept. And so again, as I reminded you last week, there's a sense in which even here in Jonah's statement, he's, he's pointing all the way back to the very beginning when he ran away from the word of the Lord. And he's almost saying, see, God, I did it for you. I was zealous for your glory. I did it for you to keep you from this great evil of not keeping your word. But God had already proclaimed His word, hadn't He? We've read it in Jeremiah 18. That His whole purpose in bringing a message of judgment upon a nation and upon a people is so that they would repent. And He says explicitly in Jeremiah 18, the word of the Lord, and if they will turn from their sin, if they will repent, then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to them. So God is not not keeping his word. But this is not the only reason that Jonah is angry. Jonah is also angry for his own sake. And unfortunately, likely, it is for this reason that Jonah is more angry than the first reason. Because Jonah is concerned for his own glory, worried for his own shame, because his own words now have not come to pass, and his reputation as a prophet is now in question. Why? Well, what does the Bible say about prophets who proclaim the word of the Lord and it doesn't come to pass? That they are false prophets. Take them out and stone them, the Old Testament says. And so Jonah is angry for his own sake. His own reputation is on the line. Again, likely Jonah is more concerned about his own name rather than God's name. And this shows his pride in backsliding again. And so even though we see in chapter 2 a repentance of Jonah. As we said when we were there, he was bent now towards God's will, towards his way. He almost doesn't have a choice here. The fish spews him back up. God's like, Oh, you repent? Great. There's almost a sense in which Jonah's like, Well, I'm here. I am dying. This is what death looks like. I repent. Let me make it right before God as I die here. And God's like, Woo! All right, great. Here you go, buddy. Spewed up on the ground. And Jonah's like, Well, Now I have to do what God told me to do. So there is a sense in which Jonah is bent towards God's will, but was he bent perfectly towards God's will? No. And that's what we said. We will see as we carry on that that though he was bent, he was not perfectly bent. And so he's still wrestling with the flesh here, and we can see this pride and backsliding again. He's not fully bent. He's stiff-necked, and he is angry he's angry for God's sake which okay maybe we can we can say okay it's 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 good to be zealous and jealous for the glory of God but shall we not allow God in his providence and his almighty sovereignty to do what he will do especially when what he is choosing to do is to show compassion but he's not only angry for God's sake or for his own sake. I want to propose that he's angry for Israel's sake. And that's why I believe that there's this play on words that Jonah is almost throwing God's own words back in his face as he repeats God's own testimony about himself from Exodus 34. He's angry for Israel's sake. Why? Because he is in the midst of his anger going all the way back to our deep fall, our great fall in the garden thinking that he knows better than God. That he knows better than God. This is where we get back to Hesed, Because in this proclamation, this right proclamation, this right confession in verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah repeats this loving compassion of the Lord, this hased, this covenant love, this covenant love. There's a sense in which, surely, O oh God, in your compassion towards this people, you will not forget the covenant of love that you have with your own people. Why? Well, because, as we have not yet quite looked at. There's a reason Jonah hates Nineveh and the Ninevites. It wasn't just arbitrary hatred. You see, God, through the prophet Isaiah, over and over again prophesied that he was going to use the nation of Assyria, of which Nineveh is the capital, to punish and judge Israel for their own rebellion and unrepentant sin. Why why does Jonah want God not to relent in pouring out wrath and judgment on Nineveh? Why does he want God to destroy Nineveh? Because he knows that God has prophesied that he's going to use Assyria to destroy Israel. And so in God's act of compassion towards Nineveh, the rod that God has promised that he will use remains unbroken. And so there's this deep, Hatred for these people because he knows that God has prophesied this. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. And we'll see it here. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. This is God prophesying through the prophet Isaiah. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him. "...to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Karshemesh? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus?" As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? And this is just one of many prophecies, specifically through Isaiah, let alone Jeremiah, that talk about God using Assyria as a rod of discipline, of judgment against the nation of Israel. And here we see Jonah is angry for Israel's sake. Will you really show compassion to these pagans and judge your own people? Jonah wants God to show compassion to Israel. And to pour out judgment on Nineveh. But what's happening here? What's happening is that in Jonah, there is no submission. Almost as if he thinks that by his anger, he can change God, dictate to God. Did you see how angry I am with you, God? Don't you understand? Have you forgotten who you are? The covenant love and compassion you promised to your own people? And here you had this prime opportunity to destroy these wicked, evil, pagan sinners and you've shown compassion to them. This is great evil in my sight, O God. What does he think? That God's going to listen to him? Shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? Shall we attribute evil to God's account? This is sin. And this is what's scary. This is our default. This is our default. To think that we know better than God. To think that God should do what we think God should do. Forgetting one of the most basic aspects of the difference between us and God. That His ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That He sees perfectly where we only see as through a mirror, darkly. so Jonah is angry And lastly, I want to submit that he's simply angry just because Nineveh repents. And I want to submit to you that the reason that Jonah is angry that Nineveh repents is because there is no measure of love for Nineveh in Jonah's heart. His reaction to the repentance of sinners should grate against us. It should grate against us. Why? Because Jonah's reaction to the repentance of sinners is contrary to heaven's reaction to the repentance of sinners. Look at Luke 15. This amazing, and it, we, we spent over two years in the book of Luke together. We spent several weeks, I think, in chapter 15. This series of parables that Jesus says, each one of uh, the first two ending in a particular way so that we expect a certain kind of ending in the third one. And Jesus leaves it out, leaving us, wanting the reaction we saw at the end of the other two parables. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 15 shows us heaven's reaction to repentant sinners. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And here's Jonah a whole n- city a whole city 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand just now I didn't know my right hand from my left hand I had to get it back who don't know their right hand <laughs> from their left hand most commentators agree here that what is trying to be said here is 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 speaking of their children there is 120,000 people not including All of the children that are represented here by these people who do not know their right hand from their left hand. Hundreds of thousands of people humbling themselves before God. Turning from their violence, the king says. Repenting before God. It should make us weep. And here, the reaction of Jonah But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah's response to the repentant sinner is contrary to the response of heaven, where all of heaven rejoices when just one sinner repents, which shows us in a very real way that Jonah Jonah is for us in the Old Testament, The elder brother and the unforgiving servant. Think about it. The very next parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son and the prodigal comes home. And what's the reaction that's missing at the end of that parable? The older brother rejoicing. Because his younger brother repented and came home. Jonah has this spirit of this elder brother. He has a spirit of the unforgiving servant. For how much had Jonah already been forgiven? As Jesus says, those who are forgiven much ought to love much. And here we see no love in Jonah. You see, where he should rejoice over Nineveh's repentance and God's compassion, instead Jonah is angry. His sin is not sin in being angry, or rather, For anger's sake alone, but rather because his anger is contrary to God's character. His anger is contrary to God's own anger. His anger is contrary to God's compassion. Jonah is not angry about what God is angry about, which is Israel's sin. That's what Jonah should be angry about Jonah should be angry about Israel's continued unrepentance their continued rebellion against God their continued stiff nakedness naked is their continued (laughs) stiff (laughs) Nick the way they continue to be stiff necked my goodness but instead of that Jonah is angry Because Nineveh repents. Because God shows compassion. Because God continues to prove himself to be who he is. That which Jonah knows. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's sin is not for the sake of anger alone. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and sin not. But this is difficult for us. Why? Because like Jonah, we are complex creatures. And we are as well battling our flesh and hopefully seeking to obey the Spirit. But often, like Jonah, our motivations are mixed. Often we have the right theology but the wrong heart. And we must keep coming back. We must keep allowing ourselves to be corrected. Keep allowing ourselves to grow to mature, to take it for granted that we haven't figured it out yet, to take it for granted that there is still room for growth in our lives, to take it for granted that it is at least possible that we have gotten it wrong so that we can be corrected, so that we can grow, so that we can mature, continuing to confess and repent and always be reforming back to the Word of God. For us in our own tradition, that's what simper reformanda means, reformed and always reforming. That doesn't mean changing for change's sake. It means always coming back to the Word of God and allowing ourselves to be corrected by the Word of God so that we are continually being reformed into what Scripture says, ultimately conformed by the Spirit, through the Word, into the image of the Son, the image of the man of heaven, as we let go of the image of the man of dust, which is Christ. And what do we see? What do we see here? Even here, heaven is throwing a party because Nineveh repents. Jonah is throwing a pity party. As Sinclair Ferguson says, there's no way to get away from this text without seeing Jonah as a spoiled brat of a child. But there's this glimmer of hope, and I want you to see it this morning as we end. It's right at the beginning of verse 2 and then in verse 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry, period, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord. And he prayed to the Lord. Now let me tell you, I will not go so far as to say It's okay to be angry at God. I'm not going to go that far. Because God is God. And everything that He does is good and righteous. But I will tell you this. If you are angry at God, He can handle it. I'm not going to tell you it's okay to be angry at God, but I will tell you that God can handle your anger and even your anger towards Him. And if you are angry at God, there's no other place you should be than exactly what verse 2 begins with. And he prayed to the Lord. Now we see the last time Jonah ran from God. Ran from the very presence of the Lord. That was emphatically shown to us in chapter 1. That that was Jonah's intention to get away, if he could, from the presence of the Lord. And we've seen that you can't do that. There's nowhere that you can go, Psalm 139. And here even though he is angry, even though he is sinfully, hear me, sinfully attributing evil to God's account, at least here we see that he is where he should be. He is praying to the Lord. This is at least better than running. This is where Jonah needed to be at this moment of anger in prayer. And it's where we should be in the midst of our own anger, even when our anger is not towards the Lord, because it is so difficult to be angry and not sin. because we are consumed with our passions. And this is reality. You will be angry. There's not one of us who can leave this building today and say that for the rest of my life, I'm just not going to be angry. Unless you, like, die. (laughs) As you walk out the door. you're going to be angry. And when you're angry, you will be angry for mixed reasons. You'll be angry for the wrong reasons at times. And most of us, because of the frailty that is contained within our own human existence, at some time or another we'll be angry at god and maybe you are already there and where jonah is right here is where you should be in prayer in prayer he prayed to the lord i mean it could be that jonah was just tired of running i mean he ran like nobody else and maybe he just figured, well, there's no use in running anymore, so I may as well just have it out with you, God. But even that is better than running. Even so, it is a grace. But Jonah doesn't see it as a grace yet. Why? Because what is his response? Kill me already. Just, keep, just have done with it, God, kill me. don't make the mistake of somehow believing that Jonah in this moment is carrying a righteous desire. This is 100% contrasted with what Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 through 26, where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul has a very different idea in mind i'll read it to you quickly philippians 1, 21 through 26 for me for to me to live is christ and to die is gain if i am in the flesh if i am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me Jonah is in no way desiring uh, his death in that way. Jonah is desiring a release from fruit, what may or may not be fruitful labor before the Lord. Calvin commented on this, and I want to read this it's a fairly extensive quote to you but I believe that it's important to see this here he says Jonah was first not free from blame in hastily wishing to die for it is not in our power to quit this world but we ought with submissive minds to continue in it as long as God keeps us in the station in which we are placed Whosoever then hastens to death with so great an ardor no doubt offends God. Paul knew that death was desirable in his case, Philippians 1.22, which we just read. But when we understand that his labor would be useful to the church, he was contented, he was content with his lot and preferred the will of God to his own will. And thus he was prepared both to live and to die as it seemed good to God. It was otherwise with Jonah. Therefore, his experience is to us an evidence that there is nothing more preposterous than for us to settle this or that according to our own wisdom, since this is alone true wisdom, to submit ourselves wholly to the will of God. Now, if anyone raises a question here, whether it is lawful to desire death, the answer may be briefly this. That death is not to be desired on account of the weariness of life. This is one thing. And by the weariness of life I understand that state of mind when either poverty or want or disgrace or any such thing renders life hateful to us. But if any through weariness on account of his sins and hatred to them, regrets his delay on earth and can adopt the language of Paul from Romans 7, 24, miserable am I who will free me from the body of this death, that person entertains a holy and pious wish, provided the submission to which I have referred be added so that this feeling may not break forth in opposition to the will of God, but that he Who has such a desire may still suffer himself to be detained by his hand as long as God pleases. And further, when anyone wishes to die because he fears for himself as to the future or dreads to undergo any evil, he also struggles against God. And such was the fault of Jonah. For he says that death was better to him than life. And why? Because the Lord had spared the Ninevites. We hence see how he was blinded, yea, carried away by a mad impulse to desire death. Let us then learn so to love this life as to be prepared to lay it down whenever the Lord pleases. Let us also learn to desire death, but as to live to the Lord and to proceed in the race set before us until he himself lead us into the end. I think that that is a powerful and right testimony of what's happening here with Jonah and the application for us, ourselves, in our own lives. But I want to end by getting to verse 4. And very simply, I want you to think about what you might expect of yourself if you were God and having to deal With Jonah. And here Jonah is hurling insult to the Lord, saying and attributing to the Lord's account evil in his compassion towards Nineveh. I'll be honest, I'll tell you what my response in verse 4 would be to Jonah. Right, buddy, you're done. Done. But that's not the Lord's response to Jonah. Instead, through introspective questioning, which Jonah gets wrong, God invites him into healing. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And I believe the Lord asks us the same question. In the midst of our anger, our anger towards Him, our sense of feeling like we know better than God sometimes, our anger when things don't, work out the way that we think they should work out. I'll tell you my own issues with anger almost always have to do with me either not getting something that I think I deserve or getting something that I think I don't deserve, which exalts me to a place of saying, I am sovereign. I am the one who knows what is best for me. God, what have You done. And the question to Jonah is the same question to me. It's the same question to you. Do you do well to be angry? It's a question that invites us to take an account, an account that the unforgiving servant did not take Which was Christ's own indictment against him because he was forgiven much. And we have been forgiven much. And Christ died so that we might be forgiven much. Do we do well to be angry at him? question comes from Hebrews 12. Have you yet in your struggle against sin shed your own blood? Have you yet repaid Christ for what he has done that you may exalt yourself to the place of judge and attribute to God's account evil for what he has done? Do you do well to be angry? That is a loaded and yet grace-filled question to the angry, spoiled, proud prophet of God and to us. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, deal with us this morning. I thank you that through the preaching of the Word, you wrestle with us. That we don't come here to listen to lectures, but to be contended with by your Spirit. And so God, even now, as we stand and begin to respond to your word preached and proclaimed over us, I pray, God, that you would deal with us as we begin the short pilgrimage from our chairs to the table of the Lord, God, deal with us. And where there be arrogance and pride and selfishness, hatred, and anger. God, not, not anger towards the things that you are angry about, but anger because we believe somehow you have messed up, you have missed it, you have dropped the ball and we are getting or not getting what we think we deserve or don't deserve, God, I pray that you would deal with us. God, deal with me. Deal with me, Lord. And may we even in this moment, as we hear the question, do you do well to be angry. Help us, God, not to presume to answer that question until we have with the eyes of faith looked again to that wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died for us. Lead us in this time, we pray.